Fortune favors the bold and be conscious of when those doors open around you. It may not be on your timing and it may not be what you want or what you thought or what you plan for, particularly like for engineers or people that have a very disciplined petrotechnical view. You may get the opportunity to work in sales or HR or in renewables or something that you just know, like that door will open and don't dismiss that so easily and realize that the people who, again, take risk early and take calculated risks are, I think, by and large, going to do better overall than the people who basically took the low road, which was less stressful, certainly, over the course of your career. If your trajectory, if you have big aspirations for your career, you are going to need to take a large number of calculated risks in order to get where you want to go. So none of us who've had some success in oil and gas or probably anywhere have done so without taking life-threatening, nerve-grinding, fear of failure, thought I was going to die, or whatever risks. So you're just going to have to take it. You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Flipping the Barrel, a podcast where we interview leaders in the energy space to uncover and find out more about their career and life journeys. Today, after a long-awaited time to get William Stanford on, we finally have him. He is the CEO of Intelligent Wellhead Systems, a technology firm committed to improving the safety and efficiency of completions operations through their application of well site automation and digital solutions. William's 25-year international career includes operational and executive leadership positions and drilling completions and production technologies with startup and major oil field service companies, including your big names like Schlumberger, SLV, and Halliburton. His professional credentials include six U.S. patents, which I'm still impressed with, <laughs> just thinking about that right now, more than 30 peer-reviewed publications, and an MBA from the University of Houston. Williams has been married for 29 years to his wife, Sharon. They are both U.S. Army veterans and have two adult children also working in oil and gas. Thank you for your service, William. I appreciate that and definitely have to honor you and your wife for that and that time. So thank you. And thank you so much for finding the time to finally meet with us on the podcast. You have an incredible history and just a lot of knowledge. So we're just excited to get into it. Fantastic. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Will. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing. You know, you grew up in Texas and a lot of your childhood was shaped on the hard work and dedication of your single mother that you saw put food on the table and just go to work every day for a better future for you. But as you were growing up, you weren't too sure of, you know, what you wanted to do with your life in terms of like what career path was for you until I believe it was in high school. There was a field trip to the oil field, which I think is super cool. I've never really heard of that where, you know, kids can go out to the oil field and kind of get an introduction to what the field is like. And from there, it kind of sparked an interest in you and the technology and just that lifestyle of outdoors and working hard. However, when you graduated, you decided to go into the Army. So can you tell us a little bit about what influenced you to go into the Army and a little bit about that field trick, maybe how it changed your path later on? Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, it was kind of interesting. You know, I think being from Texas, a lot of people think that we all know a lot about oil and gas. And in fact, you don't unless you live in one of the more prolific sort of areas. 
So in high school, actually a group from the SPE came by and they were looking for people to join what they called their junior explorers group. And I remember it very distinctly because it was the early 80s, but most of them were from core laboratories. And I think a few of them were from Exxon. So they must have been out of the Irving office. And yeah, I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. They came and sort of pitched some students and said, uh, come out for a weekend and see what you like. And they took us out to Kilgore, Texas, took us out to a drilling rig and sort of showed us that, which I thought was pretty amazing that that was sort of right under my nose. And then probably more importantly, what my interest is, one of the visits, they took us to the core lab office and they had a computer. So back in the 80s, this was a pretty big deal. They had a computer with a green screen and these floppy disks, and they were explaining to us how the computers were really going to change how the oil field worked. I think I liked the computer more than the rig itself, probably was smart early on thinking that way, but it really intrigued me that, wow, there's this great industry providing energy, keeping our houses warm, cooking fuel. There's computer stuff in it too. You're not like a roughneck. I think with the Army, like as I transition, the biggest thing is, is if you don't have access to funding for college, student loans and these types of things weren't as big a deal in the 80s. One of the best ways that you can pay for your college is to join the military. And so I joined the Army and got the Army GI Bill and have benefited tremendously from those benefits. So for young people out there, if you don't know what you're doing, regardless of the country you're in, the military often has great options that could help you fund your future. It's much easier if you want to do something with computers or technology to have some education. You could do it without that, but definitely you kind of need a place to start. But I will give full credit. It was the SPE. It was a junior explorer group and a field trip to Kilgore, Texas that got me hooked. I love that. And I really like that you shared about working and being part of the Army and the military as definitely a way that students today can get that support. But not only that, but we in the oil field, we have a lot of veterans, you being one of them. And I think it's a great opportunity for those to explore also different parts of the world through working in the military. But then additionally, the skill sets that you learn there, you also can bring into energy. So looking back on your eight-year tenure in the Army, where you also found and met your wife, which I think is really incredible. (laughs) And I'd love to hear that story. You reached a point where you felt it was time to transition and focus more on your educational journey. And as you mentioned, there are these benefits to that as far as the military and the army helping with the funding and the cost of that. Yeah. And you were interested in electronics. You just mentioned that earlier too, and inspired to attend a college, but with the financial constraints, you know, it makes it hard. Instead, you made the decision to enroll in a trade school, which I would like to add now, trade is definitely huge and needed. So anybody yeah. listening, trade is, I mean, that's a great spot to be in now in 2023. We definitely need trades. It was during this time that a recruiter approached you targeting veterans who were well-suited for the oil field industry due to their Army experience. Initially, you were particularly inclined to pursue this career path until the recruiter kind of told you about the significant amount of opportunity as far as monetary opportunity to work offshore, which I'm sure we're all intrigued by that when we first hear it. Um, Can you talk about how this influenced your decision, but also just a little bit more about your time in the Army and being a veteran working in oil and gas? Yeah, I guess I'll start with being a veteran. So I think that A lot of people who have anybody who's worked in the field in oil and gas, your lifestyle has been heavily aligned with various military sort of, I don't know, doctrines or practices or things that we're used to or we're comfortable with. And so I think that the military really helps you learn to be punctual. It helps you learn to be responsible. It helps you to try and learn to make things that are simple and sort of error free or not prone to errors, right? Checklists. 
you know, you need to be able to work well under pressure. And so all those things really align well with the military. And in fact, it was a Schlumberger recruiter that came to the trade school in Nashville, which is just south of Fort Campbell. And he actually told us, actually, there were several of them. I think it was two young ladies and two men. And they said, here's the thing. We hired a lot of sort of Ivy League graduates and so on, electrical engineers to work in wireline. And the problem is we're having a retention problem when we send these people to work offshore in particular, right? The lifestyle is very demanding. And so we started hiring veterans that had a lesser degree and a lesser credential because they basically outworked the difference in education and they were able to stick around longer in terms of the constitution required to prosecute those roles. So it was funny because I have this memory. If you're in the oil field, all of us know Schlumberger. But I remember at school, we were like, Schlumberger, who is this French company? And like, what do they even do? We were all like really skeptical. And the recruiters wrote on the board, they wrote a number. This would have been 1995. And it said $30,000. And they said, yeah, talk to your, basically your employee benefits person here. This is the average salary you all will expect to make upon graduation, about $15 an hour. And you're going to be home on weekends and nights, and it's going to be great. And if you work hard, maybe you'll make 50 or 70, which was a lot more money than there is now. And then they wrote a numbered number on the board, and that number was 80000 And they said, but if you go to work for Schlumberger and you're successful, this is how much money you're going to make the first year. Of course, eyes as big as saucers. I had two young children at the time, and I thought, wow, I need that $80,000 one. So after that, sort of the people that stayed very good, if you follow like corporate storytelling for presentations, right, they got our attention. So if they'd have given the pitch deck first, they wouldn't have had anybody's attention, but they threw that in there and got our attention. And I thought, wow, this is really cool, right? So I get to ride boats and helicopters. I'm going to get to work with computers and electronics, and I'm going to get to do something that other people don't get to do. So yeah, I went through the recruiting process with Summerjay, and I started as a field engineer for Anadrill, working in the Gulf of Mexico when MWD and LWD were still pretty new. And we were basically replacing wireline tools with logging while drilling tools. And that was a fantastic entry for me because I got to find out that in the oil field, you do get to hurry up and wait a lot. So you have to be at the heliport at 4 a.m. for a flight that might leave at 7 a.m., but then because of fog, probably doesn't leave till 11 a.m. And then when you get to the rig, somehow you're already 12 hours behind schedule because you were supposed to be there yesterday, but you still have to hurry up and rig up and work tirelessly under high pressure conditions only to get sort of barked at because the dollar value on your ticket is too high to get back on the boat home usually and do it all again. So I thought, wow, this is just like the army, except I'm getting paid better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it worked out really well for Schlumberger. I think a lot of Traditional college graduates, the ones who had been in athletics also seem to stick very well. But both of you know, you have to have a degree of constitution to stay in oil and gas. And it's not just like the hard work every day. Not everybody can play that hurry up and wait game. It's very difficult sometimes when you know that you're about to go have to do something stressful and you're waiting for hours and hours and hours to go execute. So those of veterans that may watch this, they know that the Army and I'm sure the other branches have completely mastered that as well, too. So very good alignment. And now a little word from our sponsor, Technip FMC. Macy, you know what I appreciate about them as a sponsor is their mission is directed towards a more inclusive and diverse workforce. One of the reasons why we started this podcast was to move the industry forward, and they back that belief. Their focus is creating a culture of inclusion that will attract, develop, and retain a more diverse, talented group and ensure their employees can always bring their authentic selves to work. Beyond the DNI, they're also big into technologies. 
They believe in change and innovation in everything they do. Their offerings range from individual products and services to fully integrated solutions with a single interface to ensure a seamless execution. Their core focus is on the energy transition, emerging materials, and digital industrialization. To find out more about their most popular technologies like iProduction, iComplete, eMission, and iEPCI, go to technipfmc.com. And now, back to the show. Thanks for sharing that, Will. And it was bringing back so many memories. I can see Jamie smiling too. I think a lot of us, even listening, we've all joined the oil field for a specific reason. And it was that it pays better than most industries. We've all been sucked in with that dollar sign. (laughs) But what's interesting is you took the job, like you mentioned, you had a family and you wanted to provide what was best for them. And that meant sacrifice, right? Going offshore, like you mentioned, is not that easy. And it takes up a lot of time being away from home, which is why you're getting paid the money that you are. But what was interesting is you really took five years when you joined SLB to learn as much as you could, get the training, understand the technology, hear the challenges that were happening with the customers, work with software. And you basically kind of earned a small degree in a way where you were really good at specific technology that was kicking off in the industry. And, you know, you kind of had a little bit, I think maybe some who are listening have had this where they're like, I could do this myself. Like I've got the knowledge. I could start up my own company and maybe I can do this. And so you kind of started after five years, right? Thinking and your wheels were turning in terms of how do I make this a business? And right when you were going to start or you were thinking of it, you got a chance to speak with the founder of Knowledge Systems who managed to convince you to join his startup with a similar kind of technology and you would be employee number six. And he convinced you. And so can you tell us a little bit about that time and why you didn't take the leap to start your own business? And how did that go being employee number six, especially coming from a huge global company, all you've ever known after the army to now being downsized to a super small company? Yeah, I think that Again, I'll give tremendous credit to Schlumberger, fantastic organization. The training was amazing. So not only did I get immersed in logging while drilling, I got exposed to petroleum geomechanics and how we were applying that to solve customer problems. So a friend and colleague of mine who's now BP, Stephen Edwards, Dr. Stephen Edwards, he and I basically sort of got on the back of a napkin as we were doing new stuff and started thinking, wow, you know, a couple of people could make a lot of money doing this, right? Because this isn't a lot of money for a company like Schlumberger Consulting and these things. So we sort of hatched this plan as young, ambitious Schlumberger folks to start our own business. And yeah, this company, Knowledge Systems, who was providing some software for that, when the founder sort of learned about that, he immediately called me and said, William, this is my third business. I've exited two others. It's unbelievably difficult to start your own business and you're probably going to fail. Well, look, you're going to get to own a piece of this business and you're going to get the startup experience. But basically, I'm here to kind of shepherd us all through this. It was still an unbelievably risky proposition. At that time, I only had my two-year degree and five years experience with Summerjay and a young family. But I've always felt like, you know, a lot of people spend time planning their lives to the end. And I sort of view life as like a series of doors are always in front of you. And sometimes you can pull on the doors as hard as you want and they won't open. And other times doors pop open and you have a choice to either walk through it or not. And I saw this door pop open and looking in hindsight, unbelievably risky, I decided to step through it and go to that company. And it was a huge culture shock. You know, I think if you're at a big company and you haven't been to a smaller company, what you don't appreciate is 
people will talk to you just because you're at that big company. Your business card, literally, that brand equity makes you credible, particularly the big three, Baker, Halliburton, and Schlumberger, right? If you have that on your business card, people are going to take that meeting with you, right? You may not sell something or they may not believe you, but like they're going to take that meeting. And when you go to a smaller company, it's much harder because they don't even know who you are. They don't know if you're a scam or at that time, there were a lot of sort of illegitimate oil field service things going around. They called snake oil and so on. So very difficult, but at the same time, very rewarding. Again, big stretch task at a small company. You learn to do everything yourself from making your own coffee to making your own copies to, I remember I was on the consulting side. I ran the consulting side of KSI. It was a big deal when we switched from tapes to discs to CDs. And when we make the CDs at the end, we had to paint them, right, to color them. And so we had one CD printer. Sorry if I'm dating myself. But when we had to release a new version of software, everybody in the company, we would order pizzas and stay there all night because we could only paint one CD at a time. So we'd have like an assembly line set up with your binder, which was your user's manual. Then somebody was burning the software on the CD. Then somebody was putting it in the printer. And somebody was finishing the binder. But I think what I found is small companies are really rewarding like that because for me anyway, instead of being a member of a bigger team, you basically get the satisfaction of seeing the process from start to finish, right? From coming up with the idea, writing the code, putting it on media, getting it to the customer, helping the customer use the product, seeing their satisfaction or dissatisfaction. I just found that unbelievably rewarding. So not to say that my time at the big companies wasn't also rewarding, but in a different kind of way. So yeah, very interesting place to start. And you actually stayed there for seven years and it grew from six employees to a hundred. And during that time, that seven year span, I'm sure there was a lot of skepticism and really, is this really going to become something, you know, what are you doing? Where direction are you going? Especially since you were working for a major company, like you said, that's got a lot of credibility. You now are trying to build that credibility, but you ended up sticking it out and Halliburton acquired knowledge yep. systems for 60 million, which is like huge. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how do you deal with that skepticism, the negativity, because and it's not just in this scale. We deal with it on a daily basis. You get a job and people that you're working with all of a sudden think that you don't deserve that job and they're skeptical of you being able to obtain the knowledge needed to do that job correctly. So even on any scale that happens, have it be if you're working for a small company or you're taking on a bigger role in a company that maybe you don't you know, have the right papers for per se on, you know, when somebody yeah. says pedigree. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you can overcome that and some advice for our listeners when it comes to dealing with it? Yeah, I think this is a great subject, especially for young people. And I will say, too, there's some gender bias here. And I think we all know this in the data. So men are more likely to take a job that they aren't qualified for than women. So women in particular feel like they need to be really qualified for a job before they'll even raise their hand for it. Let's talk about how I think that you can kind of deal with that and One of the things is I'll say, I sort of rationalize in my mind, it's a lot easier to consume negative energy than it is positive energy. And in my experience, there are always going to be people trying to hold you back and pull you down with them, right? And that's unbelievably harsh gravity to escape, right? At that startup, when I left, people, friends, colleagues, respected engineers and mentors tell me I was a fool for leaving Schlumberger. I was leaving the pension, the bin, all these things, right? And that was very true, right? It, it was very easy for them to say that. And I almost had nobody telling me, wow, what a great idea you're going to a startup. And that's going to be essential to who you become 20, 30 years later in your life, right? One of the things is, is I think you need to try and look forwards instead of backwards, right? If you're looking at what you're missing out on, 
I feel like you're always looking in the rearview mirror of your life, of your career, and of other things. So really, if you catch yourself doing that, you have to stop. And this includes, even in my current role, it's easy to say, wow, last quarter was really good. And we have to work every day. I have to work myself to break that cycle and to continue trying to be positive and encouraging and to look forward, to get the team look forward. Because here's the thing, if you just had a bad run of luck, then your likelihood of having a good run of luck next is much better than if you just had a good run of luck, right? Because then it's really harder to go next. So keep looking forwards and try not to look backwards. Try to remind yourself that the people around you, maybe even some people you trust, maybe even some people you love are going to pull you backwards, even though it's accidental. They're trying to give you good advice, but they're holding you back. And when I talk to leaders and we do leadership training, like when I was in Halliburton, I like to talk about what I call the three C's, courage, character, and compassion. But if you're going to be a leader and move yourself forward, you have to be courageous. You have to be willing to invest in yourself or in others when it doesn't look like it's the right time to invest. You're going to have to have the courage to, when you see that door open in front of you, and you will, doesn't matter who you are or how good, the doors will open. Not all of them are the right door, but when you decide to go through it, you need to have the courage to go through it and to have the conviction to move through it, right? I don't know any other way to say it, right? And if you think that when you're talking to people like me or people a lot more successful than me, I think you can take comfort in the fact that all of us have doubts, all of us have insecurities. That is not unique to you, regardless of your gender or ethnicity or your age. We all have that. I will say that I think when you're younger, you are a little bit more impervious to the risk than as you get older. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid to take risks early in your career, because I think they'll be harder to take later in your career, because again, you've built something and this FOMO, this fear of missing out is going to be like really on you. You're going to be looking at your 401k. You're going to be looking at your stock. Your boss told you that she's moving you to London next year. There was a lady I knew in Halliburton that I think she got assigned to Stockholm, Sweden or something like that. It was like, what do we even have there? But we had a European base there. So early in your career, though, you may be like, you know what? I'm 25. This startup just opened. I think it's like the coolest thing I've ever seen. I want to go do it. Or my boss, there's a chance for me to get a big promotion, but I have to move to Angola or Nigeria. I think take that leap be courageous and plan on being successful. And I think there's a different set of advice if, if that isn't what happens. But if you never take the risk, I mean, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? So you might as well take one. I love how you put it. The bigger the risk, the bigger the reward. And you do have to get out of that comfort zone. And I really like what you mentioned is if you're young, you're early on in your career, you don't have that much responsibility compared to as you keep climbing, it's just going to get harder. And now's the time to learn because a lot of times to your point, you can take a risk and it doesn't always work out, but you're going to learn. And then the second time will get better and better. You know, we wanted to talk to you a little bit on, and you've already kind of mentioned this on kind of diversity and inclusion and fostering successful teams and businesses. And you mentioned that during your time at Halliburton, you really found that you were prioritizing gender balance and just diverse teams in general, global company, et cetera. But you really felt like for the first time, you know, as a leader, you were noticing just the benefits of it. Can you tell us a little bit more on why fostering diversity and inclusion was important to you then and still is today? I'm a proponent. So let's just take it from that side. So I think they teach you in business school Lots of reasons why diversity matters. You know, you can think of it like aggregating concrete. If it was all sand, the concrete would be brittle and fall apart. But really at Halliburton and multinational organizations, particularly when I was working in a consulting group, 
and we would build these multidisciplinary teams, what you would really see is the strength of gender and ethnic diversity in those teams, as well as the discipline diversity. So if you put a team together with drilling engineer, reservoir engineer, a geophysicist, and a geologist, I know there are oil field people here going, oh my God, that team would accomplish nothing. It's actually not true, <laughs> but it actually works better if you include ethnic and gender diversity in those teams as well, too. And the reason is, is that they all look at the problem from a slightly different angle and they're all encultured slightly different to deal, to solve problems in a slightly different way. And what I saw over hundreds and hundreds of projects in a variety of disciplines across all kinds of different countries and continents that the higher the diversity sort of factor on a team, the better the output that that team created. And in fact, the more it withstood the scrutiny of the customer. Again, if you haven't been in consulting, customers really scrutinize your projects at the end. Whereas if we took more monolithic teams, even sometimes in countries where we had a very large group of native people, those projects wouldn't be as good as when we put somebody with a lot of North Sea experience to work on a project offshore Brazil or somebody from Mexico to work on a project in Saudi Arabia, that kind of diversity made a huge difference. If I think of gender diversity in particular, I think that the sort of the string of patience and contemplation is different length for male and female. And so I thought that was particularly useful on teams. Again, I don't want to completely stereotype one way or the other, but men will tend to move for a quick settlement of a decision where women tend to be more contemplative. And so both of those have their strengths, but when you mix them together, they're forced to capitulate a little bit to each other's direction. And that just led to generally better outcomes. And so Halliburton had some great programs for gender and ethnic diversity. I was privileged to have a lot of good training by them and then help with some of the diversity and inclusion groups that we had there. And so if you don't believe me, all I can tell you is just try it. So I've built my career on having very diverse teams of people around me. And I continue to do that to this day. And if I find I'm low on a concentration, I will intentionally move, particularly to add gender diversity to my leadership teams to try and get it as balanced as I can, just to get make sure I have those benefits. Mm-hmm. I think everything that you had mentioned is so valid. And personally, from my level and currently working in a global company, I see everything that you just said. And especially when I work with the European team versus the US team, think very differently. And when you bring them together, it really gives you a really unique perspective that I would have never had if I just would have stayed working with North American colleagues. I have to agree completely that just culturally, everybody's different. And if when you can pull all those together, we're stronger. And it was really great hearing your experiences and also what you're doing today as a leader of the company and how you're making that a forethought and how you're thinking about developing the teams. What I want to kind of get into next is about mentoring. We know that you are really big into mentoring and supporting the younger generation, which that's a huge thing that we try to do with Flipping the Barrel as well. And what's really cool is your daughter is following in your footsteps, or at least she's interested in doing it. (laughs) So love to hear about that. And, you know, considering this generational gap, which is definitely there, we talked about this. I feel like even when I was entering in the oil field, there was this generational gap. But I think now just given with COVID and what the next generation is really expecting, it's not just a gap. It's also an expectations of how a role should play within an organization and their impact is what they're really interested in. Can you talk about from as a CEO, what can you do to drive that? And what have you seen as far as mentoring and even through your daughter, that might be something that can help these companies with this? Yeah. So I guess, first of all, what I'd say is if you're not a parent or you plan to be, or maybe you are a parent, 
you will need help raising your child. Kids listen differently to other people than they listen to their parents. Early on, I saw one of the main benefits of being a manager or a leader or an executive now in oil and gas is I could pass on good advice and particularly try and help people with their professional journey. And so whether that's bringing new talent into the oil and gas industry, including family members and other stuff, I always felt like if I worked on somebody else's kid, maybe somebody will work on mine. (laughs) So I think it's important. I'll just hover on Alex for a minute. So she studied geology at University of Texas. She interned for Halliburton, actually for Bayroid, and really fell in love with driving around in a pickup truck all across North Dakota and Idaho, I guess. Yeah, she worked for Halliburton Frack as a completions engineer and then for Corva. And now she works for us out in Midland as an operations manager. So she's definitely trying to follow along. But I think what you need to do is take time. So like this summer for a company our size, which is still pretty small, right? We're in the hundreds of people. At this location, I have about 40 people. We had six interns this summer. You need to force yourself to take the time to have them, right? And two of them were high school interns. Interns are not value adding to you per se, right? But if you own a business or you're in a leadership position, take the time. The educational system in many ways has let us down in preparing them for work. So do your part to prepare them for work, help them understand showing up on time, appearance and dress matters, your LinkedIn profile matters, doing what you say you do matters. And I think if we all do our piece to do that, then we end up with a better workforce. And if you have a passion for it, maybe try and go a little bit extra like we do here and really invest in training. I would say it pays off. So about half the interns that we've had at IWS since I've come here over the last couple of years ended up coming to work for us. So great people that you stand around some smelly gym with your company booth for hours trying to recruit a petroleum engineer from A&M. Just go get one as an intern when they're a sophomore instead of a senior, have them work for you for two summers. They're coming to work for you. We've been enormously successful doing that. And I love taking the time due to, if we talk about generations, there's a big difference between me and the boomers. So I'm an Xer in the middle. There's just as big a difference on the bottom, but it's not surmountable. And I've been really impressed with the young people we have. They have amazing computer skills. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I'm pretty good with a computer. They have like wizard level 10 computer yeah. skills. And so if you could just get them on a business problem, they've been really impressive. So go get some interns next summer. I wanted to add when you mentioned, you know, the high school made me think of sports. So, you know, in sports, they start super early. These colleges start recruiting in high school, if not before that. Maybe we need to start doing the same thing and bringing people in high school to influence them into our industry. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, the high schoolers, we took out to a fracturing location in North Louisiana this year. I had them work in the shop, had them work for accounting. They work for sales. We just put them through a rotation. Great two young men. They're aspirational Aggies. I don't know if that's a thing, but according to them, they're basically already graduated. But I think it was a fantastic experience for them. And what a great experience for us. I told the department managers that dealt with them, like, I want to see how you guys interact with these people because this is who's coming to work here in a couple of years. So Might as well start now figuring out how to communicate with them, whether you're texting them from the next office or whatever. Um, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) That's what we did. It's a win-win if you ask me, right? You're training them and they're training you and teaching you some new cool tricks that maybe you didn't even know with your computer or chat GPT or all the other fun (laughs) stuff that they know, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
And so, Will, to close, we always like asking this question, but especially you mentioned your two children now coming into the workforce or in the workforce, specifically in the energy industry. You know, what is one piece of advice that I guess you would give your daughter who joined or who is working with you to help her in her career? Maybe that somebody gave you once or that you learned the hard way through a failure. Wow. You saved like the toughest question for last. So I don't think I have this phrase exactly right. And we talked about it earlier, but you know, fortune favors the bold and be conscious of when those doors open around you. It may not be on your timing and it may not be what you want or what you thought or what you plan for, particularly like for engineers or people that have a very disciplined petrotechnical view. You may get the opportunity to work in sales or HR or in renewables or something that you just know, like that door will open and don't dismiss that so easily and realize that the people who, again, take risk early and take calculated risks are, I think, by and large, going to do better overall than the people who basically took the low road, which was less stressful, certainly, over the course of your career. If your trajectory, if you have big aspirations for your career, you are going to need to take a large number of calculated risks in order to get where you want to go. So none of us who've had some success in oil and gas or probably anywhere have done so without taking life-threatening, nerve-grinding, fear of failure, thought I was going to die or whatever risks. So you're just going to have to take them. Not a better way to close than fortune (laughs) favors the bold and like the life-threatening risk you have to take. But in all clarity and honesty, I mean, that is the truth, especially if you want to excel in anything. The risk is always... I tell so many people this, the same thing. It's like, if you want to do something big and bold, then the risk is going to be big and bold. It's never that the risk is all minuscule and then the opportunity is huge. Because if that was the case, then we would all be CEOs and millionaires and it'd be super easy. That's not how it works in the real world. And I felt like the whole time you were talking on this episode, like you were speaking to me and like, I just absolutely loved all your advice, everything about the risk that you took, and also during those times, how you persevered and you need to be consistent. But ultimately, diversity at its core has really helped you throughout your career and leadership and teams is bringing in that diverse perspective. Thank you so much for joining and thank you again for your service. And just you spending that time too in the Army just speaks a lot about you and your character. So we're very appreciative to have you on and thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you all. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, leave us a comment. We love to hear from you and we will catch you on the next one. Thank you guys. 